Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we'll end our reading there this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee this morning that we are able to come and feast on thy word. Thou, Lord, art the great shepherd of the sheep. And we ask that thou wouldst feed thy sheep. Lord, take thy word and break it as bread before us. Feed us, Lord. Open up the word to us. We pray, Lord, that it would be more than just intellectual understanding. But, Lord, that thou wouldst give us an experience of thee. Lord, that we would take these things to heart. Open our eyes, Holy Ghost. Illumine thy word to us. And bless everyone in this church this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, in the book of Second Peter, chapter 1, I want to draw your attention to the 8th verse. Make some comments here. The 8th verse says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to try to go through um, part of this chapter this morning. I have been deeply impressed with this. This is just the happens to be the book and the chapter that I'm meditating on right now and praying through in the morning. And the Lord has um, been greatly blessing me through this. And I wanted to share some things the Lord's shown me. In verse 8, you have two different groups of people. It says, if these things be in you and abound. So there are people that are abounding with these things. The these things he's referring to are what came before. That would be virtue, faith, knowledge, patience, etc. All those fruit of the Spirit. If these things be in you and abound, abound. So there are some Christians that 
have the fruit of the Spirit abundantly. But then he says, They shall make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is possible to be a Christian and at a period of life, at times, to be barren, to be unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so the apostle here in this chapter, he's driving home the point of the importance that the people here strive after godliness, strive after Christ-likeness. Because we can be barren Christians or abundant Christians in a sense. We have to understand that the, the people being referred to here, barren or unfruitful, they are believers. Look at what Peter says in verse 10. Wherefore the rather brethren. He's speaking to brethren. And in verse 9. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged. Only believers are purged from their old sins. And verse 8, he speaks about them having the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Only believers have a knowledge of Jesus Christ. So these people must have been believers. But they could have been barren believers. So I want us to think about this. The consequence, the causes, and the cure for the barren Christian life. The barren Christian life. Um, nobody in here is a farmer, are you? Anybody in here farm? Nobody in here farms. Ben farms. I didn't know you farm. Well, you know you know what it is in a time of drought. Let's say you've even you've torn up the ground, right? You've planted the seed, and a time of drought comes, and you go out and you see just a dry, cracked, barren, dusty plot of ground. You have that image in your mind. That is sadly what some Christians look like. The Christian is the garden of the Lord. The Lord says in one of the Psalms, I maintain. He says, He maintaineth my lot. And He's referring to the garden. And the Lord prunes us. The Lord is working to make us fruit bearing. But sometimes we can be barren. And it's a sad thing, but it can happen. Um, the barren Christian life is something that is a great blight on the name of the Lord Jesus. Because if you look at a plot of ground and it's, and it's barren, what does that say about what you would think about the gardener? See, it's not the gardener's fault. And if you're a true believer, there will come a time of fruitfulness. You can't be barren forever. It's not possible. Sanctification is of grace. It's not of the law. Christ is sanctifying His people but there are periods of time where there's barrenness. It's not, the fact is just, it's just not the fact that all Christians have the same amount of fruit. Think, think about Lot. Remember Lot? Lot struggled badly. You would not have known he was a believer. You remember what happened to him? I won't go into the story, but I mean, his wife turned into a pillar of salt. He tried to tell his children to leave Sodom and Gomorrah and they wouldn't even listen to him. And yet, Later on in the New Testament, we find that he's called righteous lot. So he was a believer, but parallel his life with somebody like Joseph or Solomon. They all have sinned. All believers have sinned. But some believers certainly bear more fruit than others. And we desire, we should desire, that we would not be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So first look with me at the consequence from Second Peter 1. 
of the barren life. Look at verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind, is blind, cannot see afar off. What does that mean to be blind, cannot see afar off? You remember the Lord Jesus going to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3? And what did he say? He said, you are you're blind. You think you're well, you think you're rich and full of goods and you're healthy, but you're blind, right? You need eye salve. Here he describes a barren Christian as being blind. Well, how can a Christian be called blind? The word blind is used throughout the New Testament for the unbeliever. He's blind to the glory of Christ, blind to the glory of the gospel. And let me say this. Somebody can make a profession of faith because they just don't want to go to hell or they want to please mom and dad or whatever the case may be. But only the Holy Ghost, as Peter says, according as His divine power, only divine power can open blind eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ. The New Testament does not know a Christianity that is just externalized, that is just, I made a profession a faith. I come to church and do what I'm supposed to do. But the believer has, by the divine power of God, he has seen the glory of Jesus. He has seen the reality of his sin. He's seen the love of God manifested on the cross. And he wants nothing more than to know and love Jesus Christ. And so the blindness of the unbeliever is known in the New Testament, but there is a blindness that can be talked about, uh, a characteristic of a believer even. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, says that the blindness here is a blindness to eternal realities, a blindness to spiritual things. So if there is a believer and he is, he professes to be a Christian, he truly is a Christian, but he's not diligent in pursuing godliness. He's just kind of there he is going to become more and more blind. The things of the world, instead of growing strangely dim, are going to grow strangely glorious. And the things of eternity, they're going to become things that feel like they're really not even real. Because the world is going to take up his whole vision. The world is going to take up his affections. He's become blinded. He's not seeing things rightly. The text says he cannot see afar off. He has no perception, no perspective. It's all about his job. It's all about his money. It's all about his home. It's all about his life. It's all about this world. It's all about this time. He's blind. He can't see afar off. Why? Because he's a barren Christian. And I'm sure you know, as I know, Christians that are like that. There's just a blindness. You know, and, and you're thinking to yourself, can't you see? Oh, I think about it with myself. Can't I see? Can't we see? The vanity of what you're spending your time on. The vanity of, of what you're doing, what you're getting upset about, and things like that. Just the blindness. But this is the consequence of a barren life. You see, it's, it's a serious thing, right? It's not just, well, you can either be a 
Christian that bears much fruit or not a lot of fruit and don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, we're all saved. No, it matters greatly. Peter says, you'll be blind and cannot see it far off. And Dr. Cairns mentioned this in class. And by the way, I had an amazing class with him, so you are going to be richly blessed when he comes. Um, he mentioned the sin unto death in 1 John chapter 5. The sin unto death. You remember what happened in the, in the Corinthian church? There were believers. They were believers. Because the Lord says that they are being judged that they might not be condemned with the world. They were believers. And yet they had fallen into terrible sin. Things unspeakable even among the Gentiles. What happened? Some of them died. Some of them died. If we are believers and we are barren and unfruitful, we become blind and we can't see afar off, and we go chasing after sin. One of the greatest hopes that you know someone was a believer is the fact that they died. God will not allow one of His children to go on barren. If you can go on like that, for years or for the rest of your life, you're not a child of God. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 makes that very clear. He chastens every son. There was a, a pastor I heard a story about in North Carolina. Um, He's a godly man. He even preached for the free church in Northern Ireland. But he had an affair. He fell. He fell into sin. And one of the greatest hopes for his soul's salvation is that as a, young, as a young preacher, I think within maybe months, he died. God took his life. You see, it's a very serious thing. Now remember, he doesn't chasten us as a judge, but as a father. I am not trying to perform so that God loves me and so God doesn't kill me. No, no, no. I'm in His favor. I'm in grace. But because He loves me, He's going to chasten me like a father, not a judge. And if I blight the testimony of Christ, He may have to take me out of this world. But anyhow, the second thing really is a lack of assurance. If you look at verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. See, you know that you've been elected if you've been called. Your calling and your election. The election is the ground of your calling. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. You know you've been elected if you've been called. You know you've been called if you've believed. But sometimes the question is, how do I know I've believed? There's, the Puritans talk about a reflex faith. How do I know I have believed? Now, your assurance is found in Jesus Christ. You don't want to become morbidly introspective, right? And some of the Puritans were very much that way. You would just take apart every little um, affection and, and feeling and thought and, and wonder, am I really converted or not? If you read David Brainerd's biography, a mighty man of God, but sometimes it's very discouraging because he was doubting his own salvation at times. Um, because of the Puritan introspection. Um, there's, there's a book called The Almost Christian that was written. I can't remember the man who wrote it. 
But if you read that book, it'd tear you to pieces because it analyzes every little affection and thought. Now, there's something to be said about that that is important. In our day and age, we've totally done away with any kind of, of introspection, any kind of examination at all. We have to be careful that we don't over-examine ourselves because if I look into my own heart, I'm going to find hypocrisy mingled with my faith, doubt mingled with my faith. I'm going to find um, virtue within me because I have a new nature, but I have indwelling sin. I'm going to find sin mingled with righteousness. And for every, like one Puritan said, for every one look at myself, take ten looks at Christ. And I want to be always looking at Jesus for my assurance. He bore the wrath of God. He fulfilled the law. He stands before God with wounds, right? Pleading effectual prayers. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, etc. And so my assurance is found in him. But there's something to be said for examining yourself. And Peter makes this point. He says this, listen, brethren, you need to make your calling and election sure. Sure, what does he mean? Certain. Certain not to God, God knows, certain to you. You see, if you are a barren Christian, you're, you're in a period where you, you are what the Bible calls backslidden, you're not going to have a sense of assurance. You may be saved. You may be. Like I said, Lot was saved. The Corinthians were saved. But some others in Scripture were not saved. This is the point. You cannot have a well-grounded assurance of your soul's well-being if you are not pursuing godliness. You have no ground. You may be a Christian, I don't know, but you have no ground to say I'm a believer. There are some people and, and they will say, I know I'm backslidden, I know I'm living in sin, but I know I'm a Christian. I haven't been to church for a while or whatever, or just I'm just living in whatever sin it might be. But I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm saved, I'm just backslidden. And sometimes what will happen is, a well-meaning Christian or preacher who's talking to him will say, you know, yeah, don't you ever, don't you ever doubt your soul's salvation. You know you're saved. You just need to get right with God. But really, according to Peter here, you need to make your calling and election sure. If you are not walking in obedience to the Lord, and I mean that in a general sense, none of us is perfect, then you need to examine your own heart and ask yourself, am I Christ's? You may be Christ's, but you may not be Christ's. Because the evidence that you've been born again is that you have these fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, like I said, it ebbs and it flows. You have fruitful times and barren times. But in those barren times, no professing Christian in a time where he is in disobedience to the Lord, not walking in, in outright rebellion, he has no right to say, in his rebellious condition, I take comfort in the fact that I know that I'm the Lord's. He should have a fear. Am I the Lord's? And to search his heart and to repent and to, and to get right with the Lord Jesus. To examine himself, to make his calling and election sure. Now again, that doesn't mean that that person is not saved. But it means that he does not have a right to claim the comforts of the gospel in that condition. 
So the person who's barren, he lacks assurance. And then also it says this in verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is this talking about? An entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. Well, we're all going to die. And when we die, we are going to go into the everlasting kingdom. Hallelujah. Jesus says, Come ye blessed, thinks Matthew 25, of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Right? It is the Father's good pleasure to give this kingdom to his little sheep. We're all going to inherit the kingdom, but there is something different about the way some enter into that kingdom and others do. This is a difficult doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about preachers and how they've built up their ministries and some of them, their works are, many of their works are burned up, their hands stubble, and some are precious stones. Peter talks about in 1 Peter, those who have entered in scarcely, so as by fire in another place. There is something to be said about believers in this life and what they what they do for Christ and their entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Salvation is all of grace. Nobody is going to have, you know, a higher standing in glory because they were better than another person. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Salvation is by grace alone. But none other than Jonathan Edwards talking about this doctrine we find in the New Testament of, of what we do in this life affecting our eternity. He believed and taught that Christians would have, a, some would have a greater capacity. And I don't understand this. This is what he said. And I don't know if it's particularly true or not. But he said some would have a greater capacity, a greater ability to be filled with God in glory than others. That was just his theory, his feeling was that in glory, we know that there, are, there is something different. There is something going on there about some wood, hand, stubble, and some precious stones. There's something there. I'm not saying people are going to be in big mansions and others in some little... That's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. But Edward said there's something there. There's some, something that's different between a, a lot. And, but we have to be very careful about that because... I don't know how God is, what his rubric is for that. It's not like you've got a George Whitfield then a, a homeschool mom. And it's like, oh, George Whitfield, he's going to really have... I, I wouldn't say that. Some of, the, some of the, the chiefest saints in God's house, or certainly many times, it's not the preacher at all. It's not the preacher. It's some church member that prays and gets a hold of God. No one knows about them. No one sees them. Certainly not the preacher. The preacher is going to be far from the throne. I have no doubt. But there is a difference some, somehow. And it's important that we be not barren. And we be careful here that we don't ever have the mentality of, of a works righteousness. We do not do what we do in order to receive, but because of what we have received. We've received salvation. We want to know Christ in all of His fullness. We want to do the most we can for Him for His glory. So we're to pursue godliness. And then to see briefly here the cause of the barren life. Well, I'll put these together so 
coming closer to the end of time here. The cause and the cure. We can kind of put the cause and the cure together because once you realize the cause, many times you realize the cure, right? Um, you realize you've got some kind of disease and then you know immediately, ah, that's the medicine I need. And so these things do go together. So let's look at the cure and then we'll mention the cause as we look at the cure. The cure is, well, let me just put it bluntly, you need to repent and pursue godliness. <laughs> but that blunt statement is not alone. First, lay hold of the promises of God. Look at verse 3. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Oh my goodness, get that verse in your heart. Can you believe what you're reading? That verse absolutely blows my mind. His divine power has given me all things that pertain to life and godliness. I have to read that over and over again and meditate on it because it's so, it's so un, well, hard to believe. His divine power. He, he has given me His power. The power of the Holy Ghost within me has given me all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. These promises are great and precious exceedingly so making us partakers of the divine nature. We are being conformed to the nature of God. We're being made like Jesus, who is God, the second person of the Trinity. We're being made like Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The promises, 1 John 3, verse 2, other promises, Paul talks about Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be made perfectly conformed to Christ. But that promise of perfect conformity takes within its realm a lifetime of being conformed. That's something that's throughout the teaching of that future conformity is always tied to it. The Lord is saying always, I am making you like Jesus. The promise that you know that you shall be like Jesus is that you are presently being made like Jesus. You're convicted of your sin. You run after holiness. You know that this change is coming, is, is coming forth in your heart. It's breaking away sin. It's crowding out ungodliness. You see this change. Sometimes it's a low ebb. Sometimes it's great. But you see this change. And that tells you that there is a seed within you. And it is breaking the sin away from you. And one day you will be made like Jesus. Totally. It's an amazing promise. And by that promise, you know that God has given you and I the power. The power to overcome sin. None of us ever will overcome sin in its entirety until we get to glory. But we can add to our faith virtue. Godliness. Isn't that wonderful? I want to be a more godly man. Don't you want to be a more godly Christian, a more virtuous Christian, a more temperate? Oh, I want to be so much. And sometimes, sometimes I look at my heart and my life and I feel, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder, has Christ ever even made a difference in me? I really do sometimes. I feel, has Christ even made a difference in me? I'm so 
selfish, so proud, so cold. But that's why I lay hold of the promise. It's not my mere feeling, but the promise. The word says, by the divine power, I have given you the ability to be a godly man. I have promised that I will make my people holy. That's a wonderful promise. We need to lay hold of the promise. And the other thing is, we need to remember the gospel. This is an amazing text, verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Why does Peter say that? Why does he say that there? Why does Peter say, if you're barren, you've forgotten you were purged? What's the, what's the relationship there? If you're barren, you've forgotten that you were purged. Does it, it's just something that happens to be? Typically, barren Christians forget that they've been saved. No, there's something very, very, very important. The number one motivation, number one, to obey the Lord is to know the gospel, is to be saturated with the grace of God, is to know that you've been purged. And this is why a lack of assurance sometimes is the most miserable thing a Christian could ever go through. Because the Christians, this is why it's so terrible. Sometimes there's a great bondage. The Christian feels like, I've got to keep obeying because if I don't obey, I don't know if I'm saved. But the real motivation to obey is that he knows he's been purged. If he doesn't know he's purged, he struggles obeying. But if he doesn't obey, he doesn't know if he's purged. So it's a very difficult situation to be a Christian that lacks assurance, which is why you must not merely say, I examine myself, but I examine myself with one eye, but with the other eye, other eye excuse me, ten times so, I look at Jesus. And I know that He has satisfied all the law's demands. So I don't want to say no examination. I don't want to say just simply looking at the promise. But I don't want to say no looking at the promise and just examination. Take these together. But you and I need to get before God. And we need to ask the Lord, Lord, saturate me with the gospel. I remember Dr. Sexton, who is the president of Crown College, pastor of Temple Baptist Church, he said to us, preacher, preacher boys, as we were called one time in a meeting, he said, young man, before you, young man, before you evangelize the world, you need to make sure that your heart has been evangelized. What it means is, if your soul has not been gripped with the glory of the gospel, in awe of the gospel, you're not going to want to evangelize. And if you just say, I've got to just do, 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 it's going to be bondage to you. But understand the gospel. You've been purged from your sin. You're forgiven. Your sins are gone. This is that great motivation. It's right here in Second Peter. Isn't that amazing? This isn't just some Christian counselor saying, you need to understand the gospel. This is right here in Second Peter. I love the Word of God and how you know, you start meditating, you start digging, and you start seeing these things. It's amazing. Purge from his old sins. And then also, look at verse 5. 
and beside all this giving all diligence. So I'm going to now give a little bit of a challenge, right? Giving all diligence, but please understand, this challenge is backed up with, put your eye on the promises and your eye on grace and now pursue, okay? I'm not doing this in my own strength, doing this in the strength of Christ, the promise. I'm not doing this to get God to look with a smile on me. I have it. I'm purged from my old sins. But what does it say in verse 5? Giving all diligence. I love that word diligence because that's something that I, I struggle with. Diligence. When you and I are pursuing these things, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity, we are to be applying ourselves with diligence. So you see here, the implication is spiritual laziness is a cause for barrenness. Now someone says, but, I, but it's not by works that I'm sanctified. Well, it's not by bare works, but it is through our work. Regeneration, being made a new creature, that's what we call monergistic, right? It's God alone. It's a one-way street. I am totally passive in regeneration. I don't do anything. I can't do anything. Make my soul new. But in sanctification, I'm not passive. I am actively pursuing this. And this is why you find godly men of old. I was thinking about Samuel Rutherford the other day. He would get up at four in the morning, have his special walk with God. Four in the morning, diligently, every day. Why? He was giving all diligence. You read John Wesley's life where his, um, he has a, a huge set of his diary. And you see how methodical he was and methodical the Methodists were. Why? Why are they so methodical? He would have his preachers write down through a day every single thing they did with every moment of that day. Were they redeeming the time? Being so methodical, being so careful and circumspect in how they lived. Why? The Puritans were well known for the practice of meditation, right? Constantly trying to cultivate a walk with God. Puritan women, women when they were washing the clothes, they were thinking of, uh, of, of how the Lord's like, like the soap that washes away our sin. They're thinking when they went out and took a walk with their children on a Sunday afternoon and they saw the sun, they cultivated the ability to meditate. The sun reminds me of the Lord. Psalm 19, possibly, maybe they thought of the sun. It's, it's declaring the glory of God. They're cultivating this walk of godliness. They're diligent, applying themselves, memorizing scripture, being careful with every thought, being careful with every affection, with every word. Having a time of family worship was one, things, one thing they did often. The early, early church would have family worship. I believe they would have it in the middle of the night um, because of certain things that would go on. Just to show you their, their diligence. Typically in a home, um, a Puritan home, they would have it morning and evening family worship. They would bring together the servants, the family, the children, everyone, and read the word and pray, make comments upon it, and sing twice a day. And there's no, is it any wonder that some of these men preach with such power? 
One thing about when Dr. Cairns comes and he, and he lectures, you know he walks with God. And um, you can sense what he's saying is not just from here. It's from here. He prays every morning over a psalm. Most mornings at the seminary, he's there by 6 o'clock, 6.30. I don't know what he's been doing all morning, but I can guarantee you he's been spending time with God. Giving diligence. You and I are not ever going to become fruit-bearing, abundant Christians if we are not diligent and applying ourselves to know God, to know His Word, and to be like Christ. And again, understand that as I'm pursuing, as I'm pursuing, I am, I am fully aware that I have no strength and I'm trusting Christ's promise of His power. And I am fully aware that I have no ability to get God's favor because of my filthy rags. But I have it. But that should give me all the more the motivation to pursue it. So may the Lord bless that to you this morning. It's been a blessing to my own soul. And may we seek to be diligent in pursuing Christ's likeness. We'll end with a word of prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, oh, we thank thee for thy grace. Not one of us this morning is diligent as we ought. But Lord, oh, how we long to be made like Jesus. We are so sick of our pride, our selfishness, coldness. Oh, God, that thou wouldst make us more like Jesus. That we would know what it is to walk in heavenly places. To know what Paul said, the fullness of God. And the love of God will give us grace. And bless us today for Jesus' sake. Amen.